0: everyone it's your favorite polygamy podcaster and public historian Lindsay hansen park here thanking you for listening to the year of polygamy podcast and for supporting the podcast this series might be coming to a close soon but i have some amazing projects coming up that will ensure quality educational listening for years to come if you haven't supported the podcast yet please consider a donation at yearofpolygamy.com or become a monthly subscriber Years after the series ends, we hope to maintain this project and keep the content alive and accessible, and your donation will go directly to support those goals. Please consider a donation and consider sharing this podcast with friends or family. The history of Mormon polygamy is pervasive and affects us more than we know. It's important, so important that we continue the conversations had before us and keep the discussion going. Thanks again for being part of that, and thanks for listening.
1: Two, three, go.
0: Feminist, Mormon, Housewives. Welcome back to part Feminist. two of this series where Mormon. we're talking about how polygamy affects the modern church. Now, this episode is gonna talk about the tie-ins with the LDS leadership and their sort of connections to polygamy. Why is that important? Because I I just need to prove over and over again that the LDS church is not away from its polygamous past. Um I grew up, you know, as a child in the 80s and 90s and uh to me I would have never considered ourselves a polygamous church. That was something Brigham Young did. But uh, as you'll see, it was very much in the background, something that the church did not like to to publicize or talk about. And if you haven't listened to part one of this episode, go back and listen to part one. This isn't going to make a lot of sense without that context. It's important when we understand the modern church to understand David O. McKay. I have a great dialogue article that talks a lot about him, and you really need to check it out. Again, the reading in this episode, um, in in all of these episodes are really important if you really want to get a good grasp on this. McKay was important because he made the Mormon church mainstream, at least a lot more mainstream than the 19th century uh, version of the church was. He sort of was known to reign in the excess of his colleagues, but it's said even by his own children that he was an extremely vain person, working very hard to sort of develop this sort of persona about him. He was interested in climbing up the leadership ladder, and he did some things. He was known for the characteristic white suit. It was said that he let his white hair grow a little bit longer than the recommendations for the rest of the church members, so it would have this sort of striking effect. But it's important to note that even David O. McKay was tied to polygamy. In 1905, church apostles John W. Taylor and Matthias Cowley would resign from the Quorum of the Twelve due to the disagreement with the manifesto that forbidden polygamy. In 1906, Apostle Mariner W. Merrill died, and this leaves three vacancies in the quorum. So George F. Richards, Orson F. Whitney, and David O. McKay get called as apostles in the church in 1906. McKay would be 32 years old at the time. So one of his tie-ins to polygamy is, of course, he's filling... Um, this vacant seat that these apostles, these rogue apostles, these rogue polygamous apostles are filling. So right away, he um, has this sort of tension with polygamy. During his 19-year tenure as LDS prophet, starting in 1951 and commencing in 1951, he would change the church. Now, of course, he is let in to as an apostle, as early as 1906, and becomes prophet in 1951. So he has all these decades of working and dealing with fundamentalists. So in the 1930s, with a lot of the stuff going on in Short Creek, you have David O. McKay in the background doing a lot of these things. But during his tenure of prophet, he had a lot of milestones. Total church membership increased almost threefold from a million, about a million people to about to almost 3 million people. And during the same period in the 50s, the numbers of stakes increased from 184 to 500. And a lot of this you, you can read at Greg Prince's written a biography of David O. McKay, which is great. And the dialogue article is from Newell Bringhurst. Historian Newell Bringhurst says, quote, the David O. McKay represented a bold departure from Mormonism's long-standing doctrine of the gathering, whereby all church members were admi- admonished to gather in Zion to anticipate the millennium, which they believed to be imminent. McKay described his greatest accomplishments as, quote, making the church a worldwide organization, end quote. So McKay, who sort of lived through the the war era now, you know, world war two is sort of on par with everyone else in the world. They've been introduced now to the world. Uh, they realize that what happens in the world affects them, that the United States is not an Island, that they have to be involved more. And David O. McKay is very um, aware of this. And so he sort of, instead of doing the gathering and making everyone come to Utah, realizes sort of, the practicality of setting up stakes around the world. Another thing that I think is really important to understand is this is when that sort of cult of family happens in the church, right? And this is happening elsewhere. We have this sort of Aussie and Harriet, 1950s-type uh, ideal family coming about, this traditional family, if you will. And you have to understand that during the war... Um, Families were torn apart. So many people died. It was such a scary and unstable time. They had just gotten out of the depression. They go into the war and it was just a hard time for families. So in the 1950s, uh, America especially becomes obsessed with building this happy little safe, safe place, safe community, suburban lifestyles, clean cut families, and of course, clean cut white families, um, White middle-class families is who we're talking about. But the church actually really buys into this idea. David O. McKay especially. He becomes a public advocate for the perfect ideal family. He is in fact attributed to the famous Mormon phrase, quote, No other success can compensate for failure in the home, end quote. He would often talk about his beloved wife, Emma Ray Riggs, who he was married to for 69 years as one of the most timid, sweet wives that you could ever wish for. He would also occasionally characterize homes, giving out these little gems that you can still see in vinyl, sometimes or on bookmarks, sold at Desert Book. He would say, quote, The home is the fundamental institution of society. The dearest possession a man has is his family. End quote. Home
1: is responsibilities, joys, sorrows, smiles, tears, hopes, and solicitudes form the chief features of human life. When one puts business or pleasure above his home, he that moment starts on the downgrade to show weakness. When the club becomes more attractive to any man than his home, it's time for him to confess in bitter shame that he's failed to measure up to the supreme opportunity of his life and flunked in the final test of true manhood. No other success can compensate for failure in the home. The poorest shack in which love prevails over a united family is a far greater value to God and future humanity than any other rich. In such a home, God can work miracles and will work miracles.
0: I'm going to read to you some interesting things that I think happen sort of shape his development with the idealized family because as Greg Prince and Newell Bringhurst point out, that publicly he was this family man, he had this dear wife and these very well-behaved children, but as we know, that's an impossible ideal to hold up to. So I'm going to talk about how what it was, you know, maybe the motivations behind this image that he really wanted to perpetuate. This is from Newell Bringhurst, quote, David O. McKay promoted both family and service to others as essential values to be embraced by all devout Latter-day Saints. But beyond the ideals of family and service and in certain ways related, McKay manifested certain attitudes and patterns of behavior less public and less idealistic. David O. McKay's concept of family was based on strongly held principles of self-control and self-discipline. Quote, lack of self-control is the greatest source of unhappiness in the home, McKay asserted, noting that, quote, children should be taught self-control, self-respect, and respect for others, end quote. All problems within McKay's own family were handled quietly and settled in strict kindness, recalled Jeanette McKay Morrell, David O.'s younger sister. There were, quote, no company manners in the McKay home, she added. All family members exhibited the same courtesy and respect for each other in private as when the most respected guests were present in their home. As David O. himself explained, the best lesson that a child can learn is self-control and consideration for the rights and feelings of others. Discipline within the McKay home was often based on expectations, recalled oldest son David Lawrence McKay, Quote, it was very clear what mother and father expected us to do. End quote. Both parents set up a proper example by their own self disciplined behavior so that there was never any confusion. Father never used physical punishment on any of us, but he had a firm rule never repeat a clear command. Also, scolding was not part of his repertoire. Father never talked much. He just looked, and we knew. The look, as it was termed, generally had the desired effect. Such gentle, loving discipline, moreover, was coupled with high expectations. As David Lawrence recalled, quote, Father expected the best. No one ever wanted to disappoint him. Self-control and self-discipline were also essential hallmarks in David O. and Emma Ray's relationship. They never argued openly or in front of their children, preferring to settle all matters of disagreement or controversy in private and away from their children and other outsiders. Now, I just want to insert something here. Um, I have grandparents of the the same generation and it was the same sort of thing. Um, they never are, that was a rule. They never argued in front of children. So even so that my mother would say, I just, I didn't even know how to handle arguments when I got married because I never saw my parents dealing with conflict. And I think that this was sort of, uh, a hallmark of that war generation all over the world. People had seen such terrible things. They had to deal with it privately. You, you came home from such, um, terrible horrors that you didn't talk about them because talking about them would only relive them. You just moved on. Plus, they're coming from sort of these Victorian um era rules and manners and society uh, expectations that their parents had. So they have this interesting mix of the ideal perfect family is one that is very well behaved and mannered. That is considered classy, if you will. And um it didn't matter if you were immigrants or if you were... um poor, if you were clean and well-mannered, then you can make a living and a name for yourself in America. Emma Ray, according to Newell Brinkhurst, adjusted to the frequent absence of her busy husband, with the family seeing little of David O., particularly after he became an apostle. His extensive church responsibilities often took him away from home for extended periods of time. At the same time, Emma Ray assumed significant latitude in running day-to-day affairs within the household father was gone a great deal too much for Emma Ray to wait for him to resolve problems. Recalled David Lawrence. Thus she made decisions in his absence, but with the essential caveat that your, this is what your father would want. Emma Ray summed up her subordinate relationship with David O. McKay in the following revealing manner, quote, peace in the home is really a woman's responsibility. And if she wants happiness, she must work for it. Yes. And pay for it too. By being at all times, kind, loving, self-sacrificing, ready to help, ready to serve. In fact, loving to do anything the head of the house desires because his desire are also hers, end quote. Emory took this concept of subordinate submissiveness one step further, advocating that the ideal wife would repress all of her feelings of anger or frustration in the name of patience, which she characterized as the most important. Important qualification to be a good wife and mother. One must have patience with children and husbands' tempers, patience with their misunderstandings, with their desires, with their actions. She then added the following remarkable statement: "A sure way to bring gloom is to show that your feelings are hurt." Such repressed submissiveness was evident early on, and was reflected in an incident that occurred two weeks after the birth of McKay's first child. Quote, the nurse had been discharged. David O kissed his wife goodbye and left for a Sunday school board meeting. Emma Ray was distressed, and at first she could not believe that her husband would leave her alone with the baby and the dishes. As she started to cry, she remembered her mother's advice. Don't cry before you're hurt and don't cry over spilled milk. Well, she had asked her mother, if I can't cry before I'm hurt and I can't cry after I'm hurt, when can I cry? The obvious answer, don't cry at all. M. Ray told herself not to be foolish, and she quickly vowed that she would never feel bad when David O. McKay had to leave on church assignment, end quote. Such strongly held McKay family traits of self-control and self-discipline were the products of a complex set of factors, one of which transcend and predate the January 1901 marriage of David O. and M. Ray. A primary influence and factor that was strong uh, was that of his parents, David and Jeanette Evans McKay. Now, the elder McKay was a native of Scotland. He immigrated to Utah in 1859, and uh, they settled in Huntsville, Utah. Uh, David, When David McKay reached adulthood, he met and married David O.'s mother, Jeanette Evans. She was the daughter of Thomas and Margaret Powell Evans, and Jeanette, along with her parents, were native of Wales, who, after converting to Mormonism, migrated to Utah about the same time as the McKay family. Jeanette had grown up in Ogden in fairly comfortable circumstances, thanks to her father's success as a large landowner and landlord. Following their marriage, David O. McKay's parents, David and Jeanette, settle in Huntsville, where they prospered economically, thanks in large measure to timely investments in agriculture, land, and livestock. This made, of course, David O. McKay's father, David, a prominent leader because he had money. And um, they were able to build a spacious 14-room home in which David O. was born and which still stands in the center of Huntsville. Now, Newell Bringhurst says, quote, the success of David and Jeanette McKay did not come by chance but was the product of two strong-willed, highly motivated individuals seeking to provide adequately for their large family of 10 children, eight of whom reached maturity, the oldest being David O., born September 8, 1873. The elder McKay had been described as somewhat of a marinet, reflecting very rigidly disciplined Victorian environment in which he was raised. His own family was very structured, very disciplined, and very motivated. What David McKay did, he always did right, second best was never good enough, and you know their mother Jeanette it was said she was embarrassed of their their immigrant status um, they had money and they were gaining prominence in the community and um she also did something unique. It was said that she was- str- you know strong willed and proper, but she was uh she forbade her husband David from ever practicing polygamy despite him being the bishop of the Huntsville Ward. So even though some 14 families in Huntsville were polygamous, along with an additional five or six in nearby Eden, they were not polygamous. When asked why he never practiced polygamy, David McKay reportedly replied, quote, "'You don't know my Jeanette?' Thus this handsome, soft-spoken, but strong-willed woman bore the distinction of being the only Mormon bishop's wife who did not have to share her husband with another woman." This, of course, was noted by famous historian and granddaughter of David O. McKay, Fawn McKay Brody, Fawn Brody adding that Jeanette's extraordinary capacity to maintain the Victorian anemities of monogamy in so alien an atmosphere was a testament of her ability to get her way, end quote. Um, she wasn't allowed to work in the field. She was a proper woman. She, you know, was admired for her lovely hands and her beautiful, lovely, clear complexion. She was very conscious of her immigrant status and the educational deprivations they had suffered as a result. So she was determined that her children enjoyed the advantages that she and her husband had missed out on. She invested a lot of money into her children, um, She was very extremely socially conscious about who her children associated with. She even restricted her children in their interactions with children of other Huntsville McKay relatives. In particular, the Gunn McKay family, distant relatives who lived in the house immediately north of David McKay residence. Jeanette's aloofness was a result of her strongly held convictions that the Gun mckay family was beneath her own, both socially and economically. Jeanette's behavior was reinforced by the parallel perceptions of local residents. One of the Gun mckays descendants colorfully recalled that the two McKay families were designated as the God-blessed McKays and the God-damn McKays, carefully adding that it was obvious which ones were which. So, David O., with his idealized family that he sort of um, really almost canonizes in the church um, comes from this idea that his parents were ashamed of their immigrant status. They work really hard to be above um, their immigrant status but by alienating other families and distancing themselves and being very proper, very well-mannered to sort of make up for their lack of education. So it's said that David O. chose to reflect his mother's virtues years later by characterizing her as a saint. Her influence and beauty, he noted, entwined themselves into the lives of her sons and daughters as effectively as a divine presence. She was loved, almost reverenced by my father, the best and noblest of husbands of fathers. And of course, um, David O. McKay, who was said to be, you know, doubting as a boy, he lives in this household home where they sort of get away with maybe being unorthodox in the sense that he's the bishop's son, but they're not polygamous. This would have been a big deal. So he looks to his mom as someone who he can be proud of because she is not polygamous and yet they still maintain this bishop status. I think all of this is important when understanding David O. McKay in the church. His own wife, David O. McKay's wife, had a tumultuous childhood. Hers was a little bit different. She was born to Obadiah and Emma Louisa, who had six children, and Emma Ray was the fifth child, born on June 23, 1877. But Obadiah decides to take a polygamous wife. He takes two plural wives, Annie Wilson and her younger sister, Almina Wilson, in 1884. Both Emma Louisa and and his first plural wife, Annie Wilson, would leave him. And to make matters worse, Obadiah Riggs himself was excommunicated from the Mormon church. Then Riggs leaves Utah, abandoning his second plural wife, Alma Nina Wilson, and their small child, Liesl. He would move to the East Coast, change professions, become a doctor, go to college. And then he met Hattie Breuhoff in 1895 and married her. He would join the RLDS Church um, in later in the early uh, 20th century. They would move to Independence, Missouri, and relocate with a medical practice in Kansas City. He was extremely active in the RLDS Church, becoming personally acquainted with its leader Joseph Smith III. Meanwhile, his daughter. Emma Ray, who would go on to marry David O. McKay, continued to live with her mother in Salt Lake City, Utah. She attended the University of Utah, graduating in 1898. She met David O. McKay, along with his younger brother and two sisters, who were attending the same institution. And the four McKays all lived together in a cottage, which they rented from Emma Ray's mother, Emma Robbins Riggs. They didn't become immediately romantically involved, because David O. was dating a beautiful classmate, and Emma Ray was engaged to a fine young man in the business world. Eventually, David O. McKay becomes interested in Emma Ray near the time of his graduation and right before his missionary service in Scotland. It said that David O. McKay, when he gets his call to Scotland, does not want to go. He's really upset that it interrupts his plans, and he really has a lot of doubts up until this point. You know, there's a lot of instability going on in Emma Ray's life with her family. So marrying a McKay was a big deal because he was... Um, not only a prominent figure in the community, but he was a dominant figure in his own family. But it's important to note that David O. McKay's side, his family sort of shirked polygamy, while Emma Ray's families were sort of victims of polygamy. So here these two come together, married, associated with polygamists, but probably with a very sour taste of polygamy in their mouth. Another side note that I think that's that's interesting that uh, everyone should look into and um, pick up Pick up Greg Prince's book, uh, David O. McKay and the Rise of Modern Mormonism, because he notes that there was this conflict. This is also important to remember that we like to think that the general authorities are like these, you know, great men that all get along, that are on the same page. And as we see with the manifesto, how it literally tears the Quorum of the Twelve apart, there are constant, constant politics. One of the politics that David O. McKay uh, faces was his sort of rival Bruce R. McConkie, um, who happened to be Joseph Fielding Smith's son-in-law, and he was not a member of the Quorum of the Twelve when he publishes Mormon Doctrine. He was 43 years old at the time when it was published. It should note that Mormon Doctrine was published by Bookcraft, which was privately owned, instead of Desert Booked, which was church-owned, and the title itself deemed by some to be an inappropriately audacious, yet After more than half a century later, the book is still very much on the bookshelves of almost every Mormon. In 1999, when Bookcraft was acquired by Desert Book, many people thought Mormon doctrine would quietly disappear from the bookstores, but instead, Desert Book began reprinting the book as one of its own titles, up until 2010, when they decided to drop Mormon doctrine. Now, Bruce R. McConkie wrote it, and McKay hated it. When he first wrote Mormon Doctrine, McKay was disturbed by it. He actually sent Marky e. Peterson and Marian J. Romney to critique Mormon Doctrine for him in 1959 and find any errors they could. Uh, this is sort of a controversial claim, but it, um, it said that they found hundreds and hundreds of errors. Some were found on every page. So in 1960, Marion J. Romney's uh, sends a letter to David O. McKay, um, that he had reviewed it, and Markie Peterson gave McKay an oral report in which he recommended a thousand six, sixty-seven corrections. You know, there were a lot of things in it, like the Catholics were deeply hurt and offended by the reference to the Catholic Church as the Church of the Devil, and, and McKay actually heard about that from the Catholic leaders himself. It, it was just this huge fight, so I definitely think that you should look into that because I, it's important to note, too, that with with these practices, with polygamy, that the quarter of the Twelve has always been divided. These people don't get along. One of the changes that happened, of course, throughout is these evolving Temple Recommend questions. I'm also going to link um, an article, a dialogue article, that talks about the changes in the Temple Recommend questions. Ed, oh, sorry, not a dialogue article. Edward Kimball writes an article in the Journal of Mormon History on the subject. You know, in 1856, the Temple recommend Questions included a requirement that the receiver must, quote, believe in the plurality, in the principle of plurality. So you didn't necessarily have to practice it, but you had to believe it. This gets messy after the 1930s, and in the 1940s, you know, they start to make changes. Most, most Mormon marriages were not polygamist, even though participation was virtually required of male leaders and encouraged for others. This is according to Ed Kimball. Um, for instance, men could not participate in the Salt Lake School of the Prophets in 1883, unless they were polygamists. And Orson Pratt in 1874 insisted that they could not honestly say, quote, I believe in Mormonism, but I do not believe in polygamy. Still, At this time in 1883, practicing polygamy was not required for receiving a recommend, but you did have to believe it. Apparently in the 1940s, only a bishop's interview was required unless there was a doubt about worthiness. But by the General Handbook of Instructions in 1960, a member of the stake presidency had to interview all applicants. According to the Bulletin, in 1991, a bishop's counselor can sign renewals. In 1919... Members and missions were issued recommends only by the church president when requested by the church mission president. By 1960, in the General Handbook of Instructions, it advised bishops to exclude from youth temple excursions any children of parents affiliated with apostate groups. This meant polygamous groups. So if you were a child and you were still going to LDS church, but your parents were polygamous, you were not allowed to go. Now, this is important to note because in 1954, as we talk about with one of the irings who was practicing it, his kids just barely missed the deadline by a decade because if he had been living in the 1960s and his children were young, they wouldn't be allowed to go on youth temple trips. There was an exception if the children were completely free from parental domination in any apostate religious matter. So if they, you know, would renounce their parents, they were allowed to go. By 1983, adult children of apostate parents could not receive recommends unless they could demonstrate that they, quote, repudiate the doctrinal teachings of their parents that had caused their parents' excommunication. And similar language appears in the General Handbook of Instructions in 1985. We, of course, get the quote, Attributed to, in 1963, to David O. McKay, which is, quote, Do you have any connection in sympathy or otherwise with any of the apostate groups or individuals who are running counter to the accepted rules and doctrines of the church? This, uh, came from a letter of David O. McKay, Henry D. Moyle, and Hugh B. Brown, um, in June of 1963, and it's quoted in Devery Anderson's The Development of LDS Temple Worship, pages 337 through 338. This has become a Temple recommend question. Do you support, affiliate with, or agree with any group or individuals whose teachings, practices are contrary to or oppose those accepted by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? Now, David O. McKay was kicking around this idea as early as 1953 because we have the Short Creek Raid happening in 1953 where the church is really standing out against this. J. Reuben Clark is, has been battling the fundamentalist for a while, and David O. McKay, with all of these pressures, is trying to institutionally separate and cut off polygamists in any way he can. Meanwhile, publicly, his discourse on the family is this sort of idealized monogamous family. Conversion spike from the 50s to the 60s, and in 1964, the number of full-time missionaries was said to rise to 12,000 in approximately 6,000 local missions. By 1968, states had been organized in all parts of the U.S., Canada, Mexico, New York, Australia, England, Holland, Germany, Switzerland, Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay, Guatemala, Samoa, and Tonga. A new temple was dedicated in Oakland, California, as an increased push of temple work in California. So we don't really look at it this way, but this is actually a direct reaction to polygamy. Other fundamentalist groups are not proselytizing. They're waiting for the LDS church to proselytize for them because they see the LDS church as sort of like an introduction to Mormon doctrine. Had the church still been poly- practicing polygamy, had it even survived and able to do so, it would have been a fringe, small group. Um Renouncing polygamy, at least with a manifesto, allows the church to become a global church. So... The church being a global church is actually a reaction to the manifesto, believe it or not, in very many ways. There's also this new energy in the church at this time. You know, they're coming out of the wartime. They're coming out of this idealized uh 1950s church. And now the 1960s are coming with all these new movements happening in America. There's the threat of communism and there's the threat of... um sexual freedom and and so the church now starts to focus its efforts on this. There's a new focus on tithing. Of course the church was in a lot of debt and um you know the, the focus on tithing with Lorenzo Snow and David O. McKay and all of these people get the church out of debt. And they're able to build a lot of things there. They were given financial aids established to handle business matters and building departments of growing dimensions was established to handle the details of a vast building program. The early 60s saw big office buildings and high-rises being erected in downtown Salt Lake City. Another thing that was happening is saints were beginning to move out of agricultural families and into urban lifestyles. When polygamy kept the church isolated, um, the church was faced with this new problem of being mainstream. Historian, church historian Barrett, uh, Edwin Barrett says in his CES curriculum manner, quote, The Latter-day Saints had become so intermingled with the world that by the middle of the 20th century that many factors affecting the nation as a whole began to have a marked effect upon the Latter-day Saints. Thus, the saints followed in large me- measures a styled world, and clothing, entertainment, literature, mechanical equipment, etc. Like the world, they also dropped, to some degree, the social stigma formally attached to divorce. So while the marriage rate remained high, the divorce rate also rose, especially among those married outside the temples of God. End quote. I love that. Um, divorces in the temple were totally fine, but outside the temple, yeah, it was rampant divorce. Um I do think that this points to something, though. So polygamy kept the church isolated. Polygamy kept the church fringe. We see this happening in the fundamentalist group. Uh, their, their dress is still very much conservative considered compared to many LDS mainstream. So now the church has a tough time. They're faced with this challenge. How do we become a peculiar people? How do we become this mainstream church where we get all these conversions? We're global now. We can't be this small little Utah podunk, you know, frontier church anymore. We have to be this global church. But then what do we talk about? What do we do? What makes us Mormon? What makes us different from everyone else? And oh my goodness, how do we keep these people away from sin, the sin of the world? This is the tension, of the 21st century that we're still seeing today. People talk about no new revelations. They talk about dumb, arbitrary rules. It's because polygamy allowed the church to be isolated so you could control the rhetoric. You could talk about these deep, strange, crazy doctrines. And you didn't have to work as hard at keeping people in line. Because polygamy itself, the threat of being fringe, already kept people in line. And now the church is reacting to this. And I don't think that I can state this enough, that the church's reaction to polygamy is why we have the theology and the culture that we have now. Because polygamy allowed leaders to not have to focus on modesty so much, to not have to focus on um gay marriage or all of these other little things, because those were sort of inherently built into the doctrine itself. So now the church has to come up with something else to talk about. You know, they're not fighting the U.S. government. They're now fighting their new outside enemy, which is popular culture. So fundamentalists go on. Their their um, enemy is still the United States government in many ways. And the LDS church has a new enemy, which is pop culture. This gives the church... Another quandary, what do we talk about with deep doctrines? Before you could hear sermons that were not correlated. So the church has to come up with these correlated manuals because now they're dealing with a global church. So how do they deal with, how do they deal with talking to someone in Zimbabwe or Uruguay or Scotland that would make sense to someone in Utah that has been Mormon their whole life who remembers the sermons, the fiery sermons of maybe Joseph F. Smith, right? How how do you make this happen? So this is when correlation starts to come. Correlation, like I'm going to say, is a direct result of a globalized church, which is a direct result of, of um, distancing itself from polygamy. Polygamy shapes everything in this church. One of the things that people become really interested in is the Pearl of Great Price. We don't have any new revelations coming in. We're not adding to our Doctrine and Covenants anymore like other branches of Mormonism do. So we really focus heavily on the Pearl of Great Price. There becomes this sort of obsession, if you will, or maybe exploration of the idea for ordination. Here's what historian Barrett says, quote, It appears that so well were the characters of his children known to him that God made some selections, even during that pre-earth life, for specific missions carrying forward his plans when they should live upon the earth in the flesh. Abraham records, Now the Lord has shown unto me, Abraham, the intelligences that were organized before the world was, and among these were many of the great and noble ones. And God saw these souls that they were good, and he stood in the midst of them and he said, these I will make my rulers for he stood among those that were his spirits and he saw that they were good. And he said unto them, Abraham, thou art one of them Thou was chosen before thou wast born. The appointment by God and his spirit children to do specific tasks upon the earth is called foreordination. How many thus were called beforehand is not revealed, but it may, may not be that all of us were called to specific missions. This belief in foreordination must not be confused with the doctrine of predestination, which is contrary to the gospel plan. Those called to certain labors did not lose their free agency. They could at any time reject the work to which they had been called. They could even reject the Lord who called them. But their call was based upon the understanding, better than our own, and made for among those who had proved themselves noble and great. End quote. Now, this is also intersecting with something happening in the church. In the 60s, the church is forced to sort of deal with its racist teachings. Fundamentalists get off easy with this because they say, well, of course, this is just, we're already living these hard things. We're already fringe. We don't really need pressures because polygamy is such the pressure that they have to deal with. They're not really confronted with racial issues. The LDS church who's gone mainstream now has to be held accountable for these, for these ideas. And in this idea is the idea of foreordination versus predestination. So in the 60s, this becomes an idea that's talked a lot about because how do you say that black people were fence sitters in the pre-earth life? Is that ordination or predestination? Well, according to uh, CES director and historian, Barrett, they they use their free agency, and that is what made them black. So we're still dealing with old frontier doctrines that polygamists are very fine with because they, like I said, they're not held accountable for those. The LDS church now has to make sense and make that doctrine mainstream as well. And we see there's a huge struggle for this with the church really facing accountability with the racial issues. And I would argue that if the church were still polygamous today, they would not, A, be as big, they would probably not be as global, and they would not be confronted with these racial issues. The church would largely be a white church. Another thing that I want to talk about is this idea of popular culture. So as a reaction to church having to confront pop culture as now the new enemy, they are encouraging their own members to come up with their own brands of popular culture. One of the ways that they do this is coming up with their own music and their own um, literature. And there's this great article in uh, on LDS.org that came from the Ensign in 1981 where a BYU historian and professor, Richard H. Bancroft, does this beautiful um, history of LDS literature. And um, he calls it the sudden rise of home literature. Home literature is something that started sort of like in the 1880s and um was sort of this reaction to the persecution from the government and these dime novels that had been published against the mormons and so church leaders were encouraging and sometimes holding contests to get people to write he says quote the generation of young lds coming of age knew not joseph that is this generation had not rubbed shoulders as had their elders with the Prophet Joseph Smith and President Brigham Young. Their youthful faith had not been tested in the fires of persecution in Missouri and Illinois, nor proved on the trek across the plains. To such youth, the allure of Eastern education, sophistication, and lifestyle clashed sometimes painfully with their apparent Rocky Mountain provincialism. The result was a restlessness, an uncertainty in a youth that had not yet seen the world and could therefore not measure the truth they took for granted against the value of the world outside their protected valleys. Spurred on by a challenge to keep such young people true to the faith, influential writers like Elder Orson F. Whitney and Susie Young Gates determined to turn fiction into a tool for truth against the battle against Babylon. In an essay published in The Contributor in 1888, Elder Whitney himself a poet and writer called on LDS writers to produce a home literature, a pure and powerful literature centered on LDS themes and reflecting LDS values, a a literature which will assist in establishing Zion and taking the gospel to the high and mighty to places hitherto deemed inaccessible. In the same essay, Elder Whitney makes a still unfulfilled but exciting prophecy that we Latter-day Saints will yet have Miltons and Shakespeares of our own. In God's name and by his help, We will build up literature whose top shall touch heaven, though its foundations may not be low in earth. Probably the most enthusiastic of the home literature writers was Nephi Anderson, who exclaimed in 1898 about using the gospel as a subject for literature, what a field is here for the pen of a novelist, and he went on to demonstrate how serious he was. Anderson, who was a son of converts to the church from Christiana, Norway, immigrated to Utah in 1871. He was a school teacher and a missionary and he wrote many stories and published 10 novels as well as a young person's history of the church. Many of his works are still readable and deserving of our attention, but his most popular novel is called Added Upon, which was written in 1898 and I'll link to Added Upon. Um, It's probably not his best novel, but certainly his most ambitious. In Added Upon, Anderson Anderson follows several characters on a speculative, fictitious journey through the pre-mortal life to Earth and back and into eternity. Such a journey is difficult to portray in fiction, especially since the scriptures give us little detail about it, but the general idea is central to LDS doctrine. It is not surprising that the novel has created spin-offs in such modern works as Saturday's Warrior and My Turn on Earth.
1: I've seen that smile somewhere. Seems we've talked like this before Sometimes, who can be certain where But if I knew you then It's strange I can't remember Feelings come so very strong Like we've known each other oh so The circle of our love is more than just a rising sunset, the circle of our love, it goes forever.
0: Nephi Anderson considered a good story to be artistic preaching, and um, he would write uh, Celestial Polygamy Was Inevitable. In one of his fictions called The Inevitable, he talks about how celestial polygamy will come back. The reason why I'm talking about literature, especially 19th century literature, is it's important for me to demonstrate in this episode all the subtle ways that culture is weaved, especially in former, formerly isolated religious communities which Mormonism was for the first hundred years. Literature is one of these ways that culture is weaved. So at the last part of the 19th century, Nephi Anderson writes this book as a challenge to keep the youth, to keep the youth righteous. And um, his book, of course, inspires Saturday's warrior and um, my turn on earth.
1: It good to be it isn't good So if you find someone to love You really should join hands And be together Together It isn't good to be alone It isn't good There's lots of things that you can do But that you could
2: Since Adam and Leave neither can leave the other. You've never heard about a father Without
1: without a mother. It isn't good to be alone, it isn't good. So if you find someone to love, you really should join hands and be together. Together, together.
0: And those are something that even I was influenced with, uh, you know, a hundred years later. And now they're talking about a new Saturday's Warrior remake. Uh, they're going to remake the film. This is why culture is important. So we see how all of these things linger. And this idea of nation is picked up in the 60s and 70s. And the book added upon sort of influenced that as well. Another way that uh, the modern church sort of developed was in this idea that there was this endless speculation of the last days.
2: Every generation, I suppose, sees the time in which they live as being exceptional. The truth of the matter is, you do live in a most exceptional time in the history of mankind. You young people will see events transpire which were promised from the beginning of the world. Prophets of old have seen your days and rejoiced in them, and yet you will face challenges and circumstances, the severity of which has been unparalleled in generations past. For this You must be prepared. Today I speak to you about the times in which you live and about the quality of faith you will need to survive some of the difficulties yet to be experienced. I speak of one who loves you and has been given a responsibility with my brethren to testify and warn About the impending crises faced, facing mankind. Yes, I speak to you to the topic Prepare Yourselves for the Great Day of the
0: Lord. That clip that you just heard was from a conference talk that President Ezra Taft Benson gave called Prepare Yourself for the Great Day of the Lord. He gave that in May of 1982, and I'll link to that so you can go ahead and listen to all of that, and it's worth listening to. It was a, you know, huge topic of speculation at firesides at the time. It was also, a you know, this period of deep retrenchment because racism and equal rights and, um, you know, the pill was banned. Um, there was a hippie sort of free love movement going on. The church is freaking out in the sixties because now they're forced to deal with the world. Before they could just say, the world is bad, look how misguided the world is. The world thinks that you know we're polygamists are bad and they just don't get it. But now the church can't do that anymore. They have to say go into the world and live amongst the people, but uh don't go too crazy. Because look how bad the world is. They lose the protection of polygamy. So There's all of these things going on, like the Red Scare, you can read about that, and um, sort of this obsession with fighting communism in the church, and all of these things that the church is sort of, instead of leading the charge, they're just reacting to all of these things. I'm going to play an excerpt from a talk given at BYU in 1966 entitled, Our Immediate Responsibility, and this is by Ezra Taft Benson, again, who was a former U.S. Secretary of Agriculture for eight years under President Dwight D. Eisenhower. And again, it's like shooting fish in the barrel. You can go online and you can hear lots and lots of these talks. A lot of them aren't even published on LDS.org anymore if they're in the early 60s. A lot of them have really strong warnings. So if you want to do this, I would recommend going to YouTube and looking up Ezra Taft Benson and communism or socialism, and you'll get a lot of really, really interesting stuff that they don't publish on LDS.org anymore.
2: I have talked straight to you today. I know I will be abused by some for what I have said, but I want my skirts to be clean. Watchman, what of the night is the cry of the faithful? I have tried to warn you of the darkness that is moving over us, and what we can do about it if we will only follow the prophets. Have you counted the cost? If our countrymen, and especially the body of the priesthood, continue to remain complacent misled though some of our, through some of our news media, deceived by some of our officials, and perverted by some of our educators? Are you prepared to see some of your loved ones murdered, your remaining liberties abridged, the Church persecuted, and your eternal reward jeopardized? I have personally witnessed the heart-rending results of the loss of freedom. I have seen it with my own eyes. I have been close to the godless evil of the socialist-communist conspiracy on both sides of the Iron Curtain, particularly during my years as European Mission President at the close of the war, and today, and also during my eight years in the Cabinet. It may shock you to learn that the first communist-selling government, so far as we know, was organized in the U.S. Department of Agriculture in the 1930s. John Apt was there, It was John Apt whom Oswald, the accused assassin of President Kennedy, requested for his attorney. Harry Dexter White was there. Lee Pressman was there. And Communist Alger Hiss, who was the principal architect and first secretary of the United Nations Organizing Committee, committee was there also. I have talked face to face with the godless communist leaders it may surprise you to learn that I was host to Mr. Khrushchev for a half-day when he visited the United States. Not that I'm proud of it. I opposed his coming then, and I still feel it was a mistake to welcome this atheistic murder as a state visitor. But according to President Eisenhower, Khrushchev had expressed a desire to learn something of American agriculture. And after seeing Russian agriculture, I can understand why. (laughs) As we talked face to face, he indicated that my grandchildren would live under communism. After assuring him that I expected to do all in my power, to assure that his and all other grandchildren will live under freedom, he arrogantly declared in substance, You Americans are so gullible. No, you won't accept communism outright, but we'll keep feeding you small doses of socialism until you'll finally wake up and find you already have communism. We won't have to fight you. We'll so weaken your economy until you fall like overripe fruit into our hands. And they're ahead of schedule in
0: their deadly scheme. Families are hearing these talks. They're feeling this sort of urgency in the last days, and they don't know how to cope with this. So the rhetoric really becomes on the family to pull everyone together.
1: Okay, Emily, I've got one for you. What'll you do if there comes a day when I lose my way, what would you do? Well, I would stay by you, Jimmy. Pray for you, Jimmy. If it would help, I'd even die for you, Jimmy. Die for me? Oh, Emily. We've got a father in
0: According to historian Matthew Bowman, quote, In the 1960s and 70s, many Mormons were disappointed with American culture, which seemed to to them to be spinning wildly out of control. The music's heroes urged their wayward siblings to protect themselves by embracing a rigorous code of personal morality and loyalty to the clean cut church that teaches it. Saturday's Warrior is essentially a tract from the Mormon parents desperate to keep their children out of the dangerous clutches of hippies. So this is in the 60s, sorry, in the 70s now. And in the 70s and 80s, some interesting things start to happen. The church um, starts to open up more access to their archives. They have more educated people coming out of their universities interested. Instead of doing just church history, which had been sort of the norm, something to make the church look good, Since, you know, we have historians mingling with scholars from all over the world, they really want to step up their game to sort of this professional history standard. So the church archives are opening up all these documents that people didn't know about or that had been sort of repressed or hidden or maybe just stacked away. Michael Quinn describes in the archives just stacks and stacks of these these old documents. In the archives, they're coming to light. The Harold B. Lee Library is publishing things. And this is where you have, you know, Dan Lafferty sitting in the, in the library at BYU, finding, um, the peacemaker and all these hidden, hidden documents and going, what, what, you know, this is amazing. Look at what's happening to the world. The world is changing so quickly. So you start to have these study groups. Now, in these study groups is where fundamentalism really sees a resurgence. You see, people getting together and you see them um, starting to find these restored truths. It's my opinion that the, the church was sort of starved from these deep doctrines. They come from parents who that was their Mormonism. They got to deal with, they got to deal with uncorrelated Mormonism and their parents before them with these fiery sermons. And now the sermons are coming from like maybe Spencer W. Kimball or Ezra Taft Benson telling you how wicked the world is, but there's n- not really a real basis for it right he's saying the pill is bad don't get surgery you know to stop birth control and the members kind of go uh, yeah 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 we that doesn't ring true for me which is unusual right because there was sort of this t- this intolerance before so we have study groups getting together and um, people really wanting to Understand these deep doctrines, right? So you have the archive thing happening and you also have them coming out of the Red Scare, them coming out of the sort of sexual revolution. And so these people are wanting to um, understand. So study groups start happening. There's all of these firesides and I want to tell a story of a friend of mine. So there's a woman that I met who, uh, we were talking about the podcast and she revealed a, a story that's actually very common. This is a story about how people would convert to fundamentalism. Well, this story is, um, not so much about her as it is about her bishop. Now, they were living in a rural area and her bishop was a good man. This particular woman, I'm going to call her Liz. Liz was a, a child of convert parents and her father wasn't very active. So they really attached to this bishop's family because the bishop's family took in this, this converted family and tried to make them active in this rural area. Well, at the same time, um, Someone in the ward had stumbled upon the Adam God doctrine, given it to uh, the bishop of this small town and said, hey, have you ever heard about this? This is this is really interesting. Do you want to read it? The bishop reads it and he claims that when he reads this Adam God doctrine, he has the same burning in his bosom as he did when he read the Book of Mormon. And so he knows this is from God. So Interested in learning more and getting more meat and tired of just the milk, the bishop starts on his own journey. Of course, this journey inevitably always leads to what we would now consider fundamentalist doctrine. We learn that Joseph Smith taught the practice. We learn that Brigham Young taught the practice. The church has spent decades and decades trying to strip them, these ideas from the manual, strip them from conversation, strip them from, um, public media. And now they're coming back out in the doctrines. The, the doctrines that inspired these 19th century polygamists are finding new light. And this bishop stumbles upon them. So the bishop starts to be converted to the practice of plurality. In the meantime, he is, uh, conversing with Liz's family. Liz is a young girl. She really looks up to this bishop. She put sort of, um, she loved her inactive father, but this bishop is who she trusted to sort of be the righteous priesthood holder in her life. And um really influenced by the Saturday's warrior uh, doctrine. I, this is why the Saturday's warrior tie in is so important because the Saturday's warrior idea of um, for ordination coupled with polygamy becomes a really strong, compelling idea to as many people in the seventies and eighties. It becomes strong enough that there's this idea that, People can choose their spouses, and even though polygamy is not practiced on the earth, it's okay because you chose in the pre-life your potential plural wives, right? This is how many Mormons start making sense of the church not practicing polygamy. So you have, you have people who believe that maybe if they think a woman in their ward is attractive. It's because they chose her in the other in the previous life to be a plural wife. This bishop does this with uh, Liz's family. He sees himself because he cares about her family so much. He sees himself as sort of the spiritual uh, key to Liz's family getting into the celestial kingdom because her father is inactive they can't get into the celestial kingdom. So he's going to take it upon himself to get them into the celestial kingdom. He even goes so far as to tell Liz that he has a revelation that that she and his son chose each other in the pre-earth life. And of course, they're super into this too, because she's a Saturday's warrior generation and they're into this. And he goes as far as to baptize Liz's mother. Uh, He gets other people in the ward And it starts to make it to church leadership. So it said that Marky Peterson goes out to this church. Marky Peterson goes out to this ward and confronts this bishop about it. And the bishop whole you know says, Here's the doctrine. I have it here in Brigham Young's handwriting. What what do you say about this? And Marky Peterson tells the bishop that it's, you know, false doctrine, that this is not this is not accurate doctrine. And so the bishop is sort of taken aback by this. He's hurt that that Marky Peterson, an apostle, would say that Brigham Young taught false doctrine. And of course, there's speculation later on, I think Brett Metcalf talks about this in his Mormon Stories podcast, that Marky Peterson actually believed that he needed to lie to members, tell them it was false doctrine. um, Even though he believed it was real doctrine, they just couldn't teach it at the time or members would practice it. So that's a really interesting position to be in as an apostle to believe that there's this doctrine that is real, but you have to say that it's not of God to members or they'll practice it. And of course this, this bishop goes on to be excommunicated and take a plural wife. It doesn't work out. And Liz of course stays in the LDS church, but is really sort of traumatized for a long time. with this experience of being groomed into plurality, she told me that she was as like a teenager reading Ogden Kraut uh literature. Ogden Kraut was a famous uh, fundamentalist publisher. And so the Saturday's warrior thing really messed with her head. And I think that that tie-in is a really important intersection to understand this idea, how powerful, how heady. San- Sanjeev Bhattacharya calls it uh, Mormon doctrine, powerful potion. This potion of the idea of these frontier doctrines mixed with the idea of for nation, the, the sort of Saturday's warrior um intersection i think that that's really important in our psyche there are other um church you know leaders that were had these polygamous tie-ins. and so when we're talking about people like my friend Liz and her story you need to remember that what's going on in the psyche of an average member is also going on in the psyche of the leadership and i would speculate and imagine to an increased degree so we have um we have Joseph Fielding Smith, and uh, he was born to Julia Lamson Smith, who was a second wife and first plural wife of Joseph F. Smith, who was a member of the Quorum of the Twelve. And um, it's interesting that even his name was part of plural marriage, Joseph Fielding Smith. It was an agreement between his parents that he was given his father's name, even though Joseph F. Smith's third and fourth wives had previously had sons. In 1879, when Joseph Fielding Smith was just two years old, the U.S. Supreme Court in Reynolds v. the United States upheld the constitutionality of the Moral Anti-Bigamy Act of 1862, which had criminalized the Latter-day Saint practice of plural marriage. So due to aggressive federal enforcement of this ruling, the Edmonds Act of 1882 and the Edmonds-Tucker Act of 1887, many of the LDS church leaders, including Fielding Smith's father, were either imprisoned, imprisoned or forced into hiding of, or exile during most of the 1880s. Fielding Smith's father was a keeper of the records of the endowment house, and um, he felt a special need to avoid capture since the records could allow federal authorities to easily p- prove polygamy charges against certain Latter-day Saint men. In January of 1885, Smith's parents and his younger sister, Julie, julina left for the sandwich islands which is now known as modern hawaii where smith's father had served a mission as a teenager in the 1850s smith continued to live in the family home with his brothers and sisters and his father's other wives whom he lovingly called his aunties and they returned in 1887 his mother returned in 1887 followed by his father and even after his return Joseph F. Smith was unable to openly visit and care for his wife's and children until receiving a pardon from the United States President Benjamin Harrison in September of 1891. So Joseph Fielding Smith had an interesting childhood, right? His family was sort of in this polygamy drama, separated from his mother at some times and separated from his father at some times. And his mother was a midwife and um she did this to help provide for a family and she delivered nearly a thousand babies in her career. Without it was said ever having a mother or infant die in childbirth, and uh, Joseph Fielding Smith often would sit by his mother in the wagon and drive her to these various deliveries. So he was seeing polygamous children being born all the time. Joseph Fielding Smith married his first wife, Louis Emily or Amelia Shirtliff, in 1898, and then he was called on a church mission to Great Britain by Lorenzo Snow and he left Louis in Salt Lake City. When he returns, his wife had two daughters and died of complications of a third pregnancy in 1908. So he remarries Ethel Georgina Reynolds, who was the daughter of prominent LDS church leader George Reynolds. They would have four girls and five boys. Their youngest daughter, Amelia, would marry Bruce R. McConkie, who was named to the Quorum of the Twelve shortly after Smith's death. Ethel would die of a cerebral hemorrhage on August 26, 1937, at age 47. Ethel had specifically requested that Jesse Ella Evans sing at her funeral. This um, Jesse Ella Evans was a member of the Mormon Tabernacle Choir and a member of the American Opera Company. And by November of 1937, Joseph Fielding Smith and Evans were engaged to be married. They get married in the Salt Lake Temple. And the marriage was performed by Heber J. Grant. So it's interesting that Joseph Fielding Smith lived as a monogamist, but he gets sealed to three women. And who performs the ordinance is Heber J. Grant, the hated prophet of the fundamentalists, because he's outlawing polygamy on earth, but he's sanctioning polygamy in the next life. The couple would have no children, and Jesse died on August 2nd, 1971. And he, it's said that he remarked in his book, Doctrines of Salvation, quote, My wives will be mine in eternity. And, you know, Joseph Fielding Smith was also around when there was a William Tucker incident in France with the LeBarons. He was dealing with that uh, because Elder Tucker actually wrote Joseph Fielding Smith and asked for clarification on the Adam-God theory. So remember even though these guys have tie-ins and they're making church policy, they're still dealing with all of this fundamentalist um, outcroppings. It, it, it doesn't stop. And it, it still doesn't stop today. So this is still going on behind the scenes. After Joseph Fielding Smith, Harold B. Lee, who is the 11th ple- president of the church, he met us. He was on his mission when he meets a sister missionary from Utah, Fern Lus- Lucinda Tanner. And when they got home from their missions, they got married on November 14th, 1923 in the Salt Lake Temple. Well, Fern dies in 1962, so Harold B. Lee marries Frida Joan Jensen, who was a former Mission Companion's girlfriend, and she never married. Now, Christy Money pointed this out to me. This is a fascinating thing. With the exception of, I think, one divorced woman, um, you will see that the apostles, even now in Dalney chokes's case, and uh, in several, in, in many cases, apostles will remarry, but they will remarry women who are single, or in one case, um, divorced. So the sealing was canceled. So these women are unattached. So, uh, you know, people like to point to Dallin H. Oaks as an eternal polygamist. Well, many of these prophets and apostles are doing this. They will marry their first wife, have children with them, and they will remarry if the woman is single. And of course, we see this happening with Harold B. Lee. In fact, he's famously known for uh, writing a poem after his first wife's death in which he reflected that a second wife, Joan would, be, would Joan, would join his first wife, Fern, as eternal wives. Here's the poem. It says, quote, My lovely Joan was sent to me, so Joan joins Fern, that three might be more fitted for eternity. O oh, Heavenly Father, my thanks to thee. This was published in the Desert News, 1974, Church Almanac, page seventeen. And about during this time with Harold B. Lee, we meet a man named Eugene Kovalenko. Now, um, Eugene claims, and of course his story is contested, some people think that um his his narration is sort of controversial, but he was he claims on his blog that he was uh, newly married in the fifties when his first wife lamented that she was sorry that polygamy wasn't sanctioned anymore by the church. She did this because she felt inadequate and insecure and knew another woman would better please her husband. Eugene was sort of shocked by this, but it sort of planted this idea that uh, polygamy was a true principle of the gospel. Eugene um, was well-connected with church authorities, and it said at one point he began to have dreams and visions, so he would write to um, his church leader friends and ask for interpretations. And um, at one point he fell in love with another woman, who was not his wife and he because of one of his dreams assumed that it was because of polygamy so he claims that he wrote Harold B Lee and um was trying to understand this dream and here's what he says quote shocked and surprised and elated by this newest experience which gave me enormous additional energy for work remembering my recent mayday dream of Harold B Lee and at the same time eager to get a deeper understanding of all of it all, in terms of Doctrine and Covenants 132, I wrote Harold B. Lee a letter, naively telling him the dream, making him aware of my relationship with his old protege, confessing my experiences at falling in love with a woman other than my wife and asking for his counsel. What more could I do? These days it was hard to believe that such trust and naivete... I had told my new love that I'd never divorce my wife for her because I was committed to the marriage and that the law would have to change before we could develop a lasting relationship. At the same time, in a continuing and miraculous way, my amorous feelings for my wife grew dramatically. All of which, and much more, were not mentioned in this posting, brought me into a crisis in Harold B. Lee's church office in late September of 1965. The meeting was arranged by my old U of U stake president... Morris A. Kajar, father of current Relief Society President Linda K. Burton, who invited me to stay overnight at his home. When I appeared at Harold B. Lee's office the next day, having earlier that same day visited President Joseph Fielding Smith on a different matter, Lee began shouting at me as soon as I opened his office door, no greeting, no handshake, only anger and an order never to see that woman again. Shocked by his insensitivity and lack of compassion, I re- replied that I would obey him since I was committed to the order of the priesthood, but that I didn't believe him. Harold Bealey responded, You'd better believe it. That principle had been repudiated. It's all of the devil. End quote. I could not respond to such an assault, but at this point I made a silent vow never to sustain this man sustain this man should become church president. And of course this this Eugene man that I'm talking about that tells a story of going into Harold Bealey's office and being yelled at uh would actually be excommunicated twice from the LDS church. I think once I'm not quite clear on these facts, but I think once in nineteen seventy two and then later in the nineties. So uh he's got a really interesting um blog, and I can link to that if you want to read more about that. And again, I haven't verified this story. That story was just taken from his blog, so I'm not sure of the legitimacy of that. But if it is true, if Harold B. Lee did say that the principle is of the devil, it's very interesting that now all of a sudden it becomes institutional policy that polygamous marriages are only valid if you marry a single woman and you do it after your wife has died. And you do it, um you get, you know, sealed in the temple. posthumously. Harold B. Lee, of course, um, isn't the only one with polygamous ties. We have Spencer Kimball. He was related to the ironing polygamists through his wife and the Kimballs, of course. But did you know that Spencer W. Kimball, the W in his name stands for, anyone get want to guess out there, the father of Mormon fundamentalists, John Woolley. The W in Spencer Kimball's name is Spencer Woolley Kimball. His uncle was John Woolley, who was part of the group that broke off before the church in 1890 over polygamy. He married Camilla Iring, and um, because you know we talked about the Irings who sort of lived in good standing till the 1950s as polygamists. Now, just as a side note, I think it's important to note that Camilla and Spencer Kimball were actually not married in the temple. They didn't have the funds to travel to Salt Lake Temple, so they were married to a civil ceremony in um, Prima, Arizona, November 1917. So it's also weird to see this development, sort of this obsession with getting married in the temple, um, which sort of developed as a church became a more global church. So again, as a reaction to polygamy, becoming a global church, building more temples um, elsewhere has sort of opened up people to getting married, this focus of getting married in the temple, because even Spencer W. Kimball, prophet of the LDS church, did not originally marry his wife in the LDS temple. Now, Spencer W. Kimball, aside from his polygamous ancestors and uh, polygamous family, had other connections with uh, polygamy. Spencer W. Kimball met with the LeBaron brothers. And remember, if you haven't listened to our episode on Erval LeBaron, who puts out hits on other fundamentalist leaders, I would highly recommend that. Spencer W. Kimball meets with these people in 1942 in Mesa, Arizona the LeBaron's mother had invited Elder Kimball to meet with them because she was contemplating being re-baptized into the LDS Church. His journal shows his sort of distaste for the um, LeBaron voice. Here's what he wrote, writes in 1942, quote, Never before have I come in such c- close contact with Lucifer and his devils, end quote, which I actually think shows some discernment because, um, as we know, the LeBarons go on to murder a bunch of people. Sorry for clarification, some of the LeBarons. Here's what he also wrote, quote, She seemed to have a good spirit and attitude and began telling me of her problems when her three tall apostate sons came uninvited into the room. They had also been excommunicated for apostasy, and they were very belligerent, cold, haughty, defiant. The one boy had his shirt off with his garments prominently displayed. I am sure it was intended to impress me. I told her and later them that if they wished to see me further, I would be at my hotel and that I would do anything I could for them. End quote. Eight years later, of course, Ervil shows up at a general conference priesthood meeting at the Tabernacle, and he shakes hands with Elder Kimball asking for his names. And it's said that, you know, Spencer W. Kimball says, quote, I am Brother Kimball. And he says, which Kimball? Ervil says, which Kimball? And he says, S Spencer W. Kimball. And Ervil says, oh, well, I am the great LeBaron. Dun, dun, dun. At this juncture, Elder Kimball told him, quote, you were not invited to this meeting. In fact, you were invited not to come. You hold no priesthood. Leave the tabernacle. Don't ever come to such a meeting again. If you can repent and get back into the church, you'd better do it while there is still time, End quote. And then there's this brilliant, brilliant, um, conference talk that has a lot to unpack. Like if you want to read a conference talk with a lot of stuff in there, a lot of, it's just kind of all over the place. In 1974, there's this, there's this talk called a uh, God will not be mocked. And here's what, um, elder Kimball says among so many other things. Quote, we warn you against the so-called polygamy cults, which would lead you astray. Remember the Lord brought an end to his program many decades ago through a prophet who claimed the revelation to the world. People are are abroad who will deceive you and bring you much sorrow and remorse. Have nothing to do with those who would lead you astray. It is wrong and sinful to ignore the Lord when he speaks. He has spoken strongly and conclusively. Also note in that quote that it's important to notice the shift in rhetoric. So he calls polygamy a program. It's a very correlated language that the Lord has put an end to this program, and all of a sudden this program is now off the earth. It would only be 10 years later from that talk that we would have the Lafferty brothers carrying out their murder against Brenda Wright and Erica Lafferty. On May of 1977, fundamentalist Rulin C. Allred would be murdered from Ervil LeBaron, who had met S- Spencer Kimball. And this, and the murder of Rulin C. Allred of the Allred group was the most publicized of all the murders that Ervil Ervil had ordered. One of, he, you know, Ervil, if you listen to the LeBaron episode, has a death, like a hit list, people that needed to be blood atoned. And of course, Spencer W. Kimball makes that list. And so Spencer W. Kimball is forced to confront this. So the attitudes start to change. You know, you have Heber J. Grant, you have um, David O. McKay. They're dealing with people that they knew as friends. Spencer Kimball also knew these people as friends. But now they're starting, they've been sort of cloistered away from polygamy enough. The break has been, you know, several generations now where fundamentalists are doing their thing and the LDS church are doing their thing. There's old, bad blood, but it's separated enough that the only time that um, that we know of, at least, that the LDS prophets have to come in contact with polygamists are through church discipline settings or, you know, these sort of violent, sensational uh, stories that, that the LDS church wants to keep as much distance from because it embarrasses them, like the Liberians or eventually the FLDS. So then we have Elder Ezra Taft Benson, who you know was born to a polygamous father. His great grandfather was Ezra T. Benson, who was a very known polygamous leader, and married Joseph's wife, Desdemona Fuller. We have President Howard W. Hunter, who reaffirmed the doctrine of plural marriage in October 2007 when the Desert News reported, quote, President Hinckley affirmed the eternal nature of the marriage between Sister Ines Hunter and the former church president, whose first wife, Claire Jeffs, died after a long battle with Alzheimer's disease and is now buried beside him in the Salt Lake City Cemetery. Ines Hunter will now be laid to rest on the other side, he said. They were sealed under the authority of the Holy Melchizedek Priesthood for time and all eternity, he said, recalling the marriage ceremony he performed for them in the Salt Lake Temple in April 1990. And so Howard W. Hunter, of course, is married, sealed polygamously to two women with President Hinckley performing this. So all of these all of these uh, church leaders have all of these contacts. Of course, Hinckley famously says in his interview that the doctrine of polygamy is not doctrine. He, he doesn't know that we teach that. He sort of does this institutional distancing, sacred versus secret dance that all the church prophets have done. And here's a clip from Gordon B. Hinckley's famous 1998 Larry King live interview.
3: Uh, before we get back to morals and morality, is uh, the big story, if you don't know it is, polygamy in Utah, there's been major charges. The governor, uh, Mike Leavitt, says that um, there are legal reasons why the state of Utah has not prosecuted alleged polygamists. Leavitt said plural marriage may be protected by the First Amendment. Uh, he is the great-great-grandson, is the governor of a polygamist, First, tell me about the church and polygamy. When it started, it allowed it. First, tell me about the church and polygamy. When it started, it allowed it.
4: When our people came west, they permitted it on a restricted scale.
3: You could have a certain amount of...
4: The figures that I have are between 2% and 5% of our people were involved in it. It was a very limited practice, carefully safeguarded. In 1890, that practice was discontinued. The president of the church, the man who occupied the position, which I occupy today, went before the people, said he had prayed about it, worked on it, uh, and had received, the Lord, a revelation. That the time to stop was just to discontinue it. Then, that's 118 years ago. It's behind us. But when the word is mentioned,
3: when you hear the word, you think Mormon, right? I mean, you when do it's...
4: mistakenly. They have no connection with us, whatever. They're not you... belong... They don't belong to the church. There are actually no Mormon fundamentalists.
3: <laughs> are you surprised that there's
4: apparently a lot of polygamy in Utah? Well, I've seen the thing grow somewhat. I don't know how large it is. I don't know how pervasive it is. President Hinckley, when
3: the press that pays attention to it, it does affect you certainly in a public relations sense.
4: It does because people mistakenly assume that this church has something to do with that. It has nothing whatever to do with it. It has had nothing to do with it for a very long time. It's outside the realm of our responsibility. These people are not members. Any man or woman who becomes involved in it is excommunicated from the church.
3: Prosecutors in Utah quoted a saying, they told the Salt Lake Tribune, that it's difficult to prosecute polygamists because of a lack of evidence and ex-wives and daughters rarely complain about it.
4: Well? I see that as a problem. It's secretive. There's a certain element of secretiveness about it. I suppose they have some difficulty. They say they do in gathering evidence. Should the church be more forceful?
3: in speaking out. I mean, you're forceful here tonight, but maybe maybe in saying that it's rather than just a state matter encouraging the state to prosecute.
4: I don't know. We'll consider it. <laughs> I'm giving you an idea. Yeah, would, would you yeah. look
3: better if you were...
4: I don't know that we would or not. I'm, as far as I'm concerned, I have nothing to do with it. Uh, it belongs to the civil officers of the state.
3: You condemn it.
4: I condemn it, yes, as a practice, because I think it is not doctrinal. It is not legal, and this church takes the position that we will abide by the law. We believe in being subject to kings, presidents, rulers, magistrates in honoring, obeying, and sustaining the law. I condemn it, yes, as a practice, because I think it is not doctrinal. It is not legal, and this church takes the position that we will abide by the law.
0: Apostle Russell M. Nelson was another example of plural ceilings. Uh, his first wife died in February 2005, and he would remarry a single woman. And meanwhile, while all these ceilings are happening, of course, the church, whenever confronted in the media about it, will distance themselves. Um, Quentin L. Cook was uh, quoted saying, quote, Members of the Church of the Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, often called Mormons, do not practice polygamy, and they have not practiced polygamy for over a century. Dallin H. Oaks would do the same thing, but of course, he's famous for marrying twice. His first wife died of cancer, and he married Kristen McCain polygamously, who she was also single. And so we have all these leaders who are still connected to polygamy. Some of you might say, so what? So what does that have to do with anything? Doesn't mean we practice polygamy. It doesn't but it still affects the ceiling. So in the next episode, we're going to talk about all the ways that sort of uh, polygamy still affects the LDS church today. I just wanted to sort of lay the groundwork on how the modern church was changed in and around polygamy and uh, their connections to it. Thomas S. Monson does not have the sort of same polygamy pedigree, although there are some connections, but I will say that his connection to polygamy that I think is the most prominent is that during his uh, leadership tenure, he has published the church essays on um, polygamy, where they, they do not repudiate polygamy. They're as open as the church has been in a while about it, but they do not repudiate polygamy, which is interesting. And as far as the essays go, some of them, it would seem, would contradict what Gordon B. Kinkley said on Larry King Live. There are about four essays, really three, but there's a fourth, Intergestion and If you're listening to this podcast, you should all be reading those essays so you know what they say. But uh, they have sort of a different take than Gordon B. Hinckley does. And here is just an excerpt from the essay that says, The Manifesto and the End of Plural Marriage.
2: For much of the 19th century, a significant number of members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints practiced plural marriage. The marriage of one man to more than one woman. The beginning and end of the practice were directed by revelation through God's prophets. The initial command to practice plural marriage came through Joseph Smith, the founding prophet and president of the church. In 1890, President Wilford Woodruff issued the Manifesto, which led to the end of plural marriages in the church. The end of plural marriage required great faith and sometimes complicated, painful, and intensely personal decisions on the part of individual members and church leaders. Like the beginning of plural marriage in the church, the end of the practice was a process rather than a single event. Revelation came... Line upon line, precept upon precept.
0: And of course, there's a lot of discussions. You can read a lot of blogs talking about the essays on polygamy. So in the next episode, we're going to talk more about that. But you should know that we're finally coming as a church into generations of people, maybe um, leaders of the church, that do not have direct polygamous connections, which I think is interesting. It'll be interesting to see what happens in the next few years when you have leaders in the church that, um, maybe they have polygamous ancestors generations back, but never sort of knew the struggle, never lived it as children, never were affected directly by it, or maybe don't even know that much about it. They're sort of were lived apart from it. So those are the leaders who are starting to come up into the church now. And, um, but there are still lots of connections, and some would argue, you know, a lot of Mormon fundamentalists believe that there are conspiracies going on, that if the church would finally release some of the diaries of maybe George Q. Cannon or or some of these other leaders, open up the archives, that they will be vindicated, that the LDS church leaders take these oaths, these secret oaths to practice polygamy and to, to uh, keep it alive um, when they enter... You know, the, the church presidency. There's all these interesting theories out there. But what we do know is that the current leaders still have polygamous connections, still have interactions with polygamists today. So I hope that will give you some interesting food for thought as we move into the next episode. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast.